Well, we're going to read the Bible now. As I said, we're jumping into Titus chapter 3. Uh, so that'll come up on the screen and I'll read that now. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, He saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour. So that, having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. As soon as I send Artemis or Tychius to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, because I've decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way, and see that they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. I love hearing people's conversion stories. And one of the things I've noticed recently is that conversion stories are not just a Christian thing. Uh, there, there are all sorts of different types of conversion stories around the world today. You see it in gyms, you see it in the Olympics, you see it in surfing, you see it in self-help programs a lot. So Tony Robbins, he is the master of the conversion story, right? People whose lives are, are a train wreck for, for one reason or another, something's happened to them or they've done something and their lives are changed forever in a moment at one conference. Or there's the Atomic Habits approach. A lot of people are reading this book, Atomic Habits, at the moment. And the whole idea behind Atomic Habits is, is conversion from being an ill-disciplined person to someone who is effective and useful and disciplined. And the idea behind the book is not just one lifetime event, one life-changing moment, but small incremental gains every single day, 1% better every day. One of the interesting things about all of these conversion stories is that there is a need that arises in someone's life that then needs to be addressed. Maybe it's a lack of productivity, an injury they had to overcome, an adversity they need to push through, a past that has somehow defined a person. And so as Christians, we love to tell our conversion stories, but we're not actually the only ones. 
the coach at our gym recently wrote a little piece uh, about why he started training, why he started the fitness lifestyle. Uh, I tried to get a photo of him for today, but I couldn't find one without it when, he, when he's actually wearing a t-shirt. Uh, but the conversion story is this, essentially. It starts with a need, and the need was he, firstly, he watched his father tragically die from lung cancer. And that actually helped him to understand the importance and the need for health and well-being. Second, he had back pain, chronic back pain that left him terrified that this was his lot in life and he, and he needed to overcome that somehow. There was a need that needed to be addressed, an issue that needed to be dealt with that led to his conversion, conversion to a lifestyle of fitness. And that's common across all of the conversion stories that you read or watch. The other factor that is common amongst all of these conversion stories is the emphasis on the self. It's you who rewrites the story of your life. It's you who overcomes adversity. It's you who gets the job done, who turns up every day to the gym. It's you who incrementally improves 1% every single day. Now, what we're going to see today is that our conversion is actually very different. Our story starts, our story of faith starts with a need, a desperate need, but the solution doesn't come from within. We don't save ourselves, which is radically different from the gospel of self-help, the gospel of fitness, the gospel of any kind of well-being programs. And my hope today is that you will actually grow in your appreciation for what God has done for us and that this news of the gospel would profoundly transform your life. But first, let's have a look at the need for salvation. It's there in chapter 3, verse 3, Titus 3, 3. He says, At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. In other words, our, our relationship with God was a mess. We were foolish. We were disobedient. And in the Bible, uh, the idea of a fool isn't someone who's a class clown or, or someone who always does dumb things all of the time. But the fool is someone who says in his heart, there is no God. So Psalm 14 verse 1, uh, and they don't have to be an outspoken atheist, but this is someone who lives as though God does not exist. To ignore God is the definition of folly in the Bible. And the disobedient person well, that's the one who rejects God's rule in their life and just wants to do life their own way. And that is the description of our world, our society, our workplaces, our schoolyards. That is, that is the description of us apart from Christ. Now, I reckon middle-class Christianity, which is us, we, we kind of sometimes look at the people around us and we don't see the great needs for salvation because we don't see people in light of the gospel. People look successful and happy and somewhat fulfilled. And so we kind of assume there is no need for them. But you can be successful in your industry. You can be a really, really nice person. You can be the nicest person on your street and still be a fool because you live as though there is no God. We have a new series uh, that's going to be kicking off next week at church. And that will be a great series to invite friends along to. But here's what I think we often do. We look for the person who needs Jesus. And what we often mean by that is we look for the person whose life is kind of falling apart, of, apart at the seams. 
But Christianity is not just for the needy. Christianity is also for the person who doesn't think they are needy, who lives as if there is no God, who lives his life on their own terms and, and just kind of rejects God and his rule in their lives. And if we're going to be urgent about the gospel, we need to see people through the lens of the gospel. That is who you were. That is who I was. Foolish, disobedient. And then this rejection of God actually affects everything else. Our active foolishness and our disobedience is coupled with the fact that we were victims of evil forces we could not control. So he doesn't just say we're foolish, but he also says we were deceived. He doesn't just say we were disobedient, but he says we were enslaved, which means we can't save ourselves. We can't simply choose not to be a fool anymore. We can't simply decide to then live under God's rule anymore because we're deceived and we're enslaved. And so with our relationship with God, a complete mess, it's not surprising then that our relationship with one another is all smashed up as well. So you see that in verse three, at the end of verse three, he goes on to say, we lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. And this is what we see in the world around us, yeah? Malice is just wishing people evil. Envy is resenting and coveting their good. I mean, who hasn't done that? And both of these things disrupt human relationships and they lead to humans being hated and hating one another. That's a pretty gross picture of the human condition, isn't it? And yes, people are capable of immense good in this world, but we're also pretty average at times as well. And, and, and all of the different conversion stories we see in our world today are evidence of that. All of those, what all those different conversion stories tell us and recognize is that there is actually a need for change. But when you're deceived and when you're enslaved, you need more than a helping hand. We actually need to be rescued. And that is exactly what God has done for us. And we're going to look at that in a moment, but, but when we look at our salvation here, I, I want you to notice that the three persons of the Trinity are all involved. This isn't something we normally think a tremendous amount about. Uh, we usually talk about the work of Jesus on the cross for our salvation, but here in Titus 3, Paul is very deliberate in kind of outlining the way that all three persons of the Trinity are involved in our conversion, in our salvation. And so I thought it would just kind of be worth teasing that out. And so we're going to look at the kindness of God the Father, the work of the Son, and the work of the Holy Spirit. And the first thing we see about our salvation is the source of our salvation is the kindness and love of God the Father. So have a look in verse 4. He says, But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. Now this is profound, isn't it? The answer to our predicament in verse 4, foolish, disobedient, enslaved, deceived, is not our own efforts and self-discipline. It's not 1% improvement every day. It's not even because of good things we had done. The source of our salvation is God the Father. It's His mercy, His kindness, His love. See, if we think that we will be accepted 
because we are inherently acceptable or because God should just kind of accept everywhere, everyone regardless, we've actually not understood the Bible. It's not that God looked at us and thought, you know what, on balance, then they're not too bad. It's not that he looked at me and thought, you know, I, I can see a little bit of potential there. I can, I can work with this guy. This is not a job interview where we put all of our strengths on the table and the interviewers decide on the basis of some kind of glorified picture that we paint about ourselves. No, God sees right through all of that. He looks at us. He sees folly. He sees disobedience, malice, envy, hatred. He sees all of those things. He sees reasons to condemn us. And yet in his kindness and his love, he saves us. Not because of the righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. And so across the pages of our conversion story, God writes, my kindness, my love, my mercy. It's not my choice, my will, my determination. It's all because of God and his kindness. And there was a moment in history where the kindness and love of God appeared. And that moment in history was when Jesus came into this world. You know, in the Old Testament, they knew of the love and kindness of God. He had acted towards his people with kindness and love and mercy for years and years and years. But then his kindness appeared. God the Son entered into human existence. The appearance of his love was the moment that Jesus was born at Bethlehem. And at that moment, God's kindness and his love became apparent. It was visible. You could see it. You could touch it. You could smell it. And most profoundly, we see his kindness and love through the cross, through his death and his resurrection. And at the, at the cross, the work of Jesus at the cross actually brings two things that this passage highlights for us. Justification and eternal life. Have a look there in verse 7. So that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. So what is justification? Well, it's a legal term, right? And it means to be declared right. A, a, a trial is taking place. The charge is that we were foolish, disobedient, deceived, malicious, envious, hating, and the verdict is guilty for every single one of us. Now, the judge can't just let the guilty go free, right? That would be unjust. And so because our God is just, he, he has to somehow deal with our guilt. And yet at the same time, he wants to show kindness and mercy and love to us. So how do you do that? How do you show justice and mercy all at the same time? Well, this is the remarkable thing about Jesus' death. In his death, the sentence we deserved is placed on him. He dies in our place. He bears our penalty and sin there is dealt with at the death of Jesus. And as a result, the verdict against us is no longer one of condemnation, but one of innocence. We are justified. We are declared righteous in his sight. And so when you can comprehend this, the kindness of God ought to just blow us away. 
See, justification is not just a theological word, but it is the very centerpiece of our salvation. And the second thing his kindness achieves through Jesus' death on the cross is eternal life. Now, I think as Christians, we don't spend a lot of time thinking about what eternal life actually means. So, so let's kind of unpack that a little. If you have a look there in verse 7 again, what you'll see is that justification is a precondition of having hope. It's only having been justified by his grace that we can then become heirs having the hope of eternal life. And what we often do with eternal life is we kind of think of it as some kind of translucent experience where we float around almost as ghosts. But the hope, hope of eternal life is actually much more physical than that. We're actually going to be physically present with Jesus in eternity. And more than that, we're actually heirs, co-heirs with Christ. All that belongs to Jesus in eternity will belong to us, his people. And so in eternity, we receive this remarkable inheritance alongside Jesus. And so from our justification, our hope is not just the promise of acquittal on the day of judgment, as good as that is, right? Our hope is the certainty that we will actually live a new life in a new world. The kindness of, love, of God has not only saved us from something, but it has actually saved us for something. The kindness of God has saved us from guilt and for eternity. How wonderful is the kindness of God? Now, perhaps you do not know the love of Jesus yet. And we want you to know the kindness and love of God here at Hunter Bible Church. And so we love the fact that you're here, tuning in online, and we want to encourage you to just Keep coming back week after week. Maybe even come back uh, to physical church, face-to-face church with us at some point. And in fact, um, over the next few weeks, it's going to be perfect for you. We're, we're, we're in the next few weeks, in the lead up to Easter, we're doing a whole series that will actually help you to reconsider who Jesus is. We're going to work through a whole bunch of questions people have. And so just keep coming. Keep coming back. Keep watching or keep coming back face-to-face and in person. And if you're someone who's here every week, this is actually a great time to start praying for friends to come and hear about Jesus, praying that God would actually give them his spirit to know and understand the truth. And this is the third piece of salvation that I want us to see here. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. We don't often dwell on the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, or at least we don't kind of think about him very often in our conversion story. We've been doing our testimonies each week in our, in our growth groups here at church, and we just spend five minutes or so uh, just getting to know people a little bit more, trying to understand where they came from, how they became a Christian, what their Christian background is like, and all that sort of thing. And so as we tell our story, what we tend to do is we tell it from a very human sort of perspective. So for me, one of the things that I said is that a friend's death actually got me thinking about life and death and meaning and purpose. And so from there, I joined a Bible study group and I realized that I had to make a decision to follow Jesus or reject what I had learned to actually be true. 
And that's right, all of that's true. All of that's part of my testimony, my conversion story. But as I kind of look back at that now, it's really hard to imagine making any other decision other than the one I made. And how did I work out that the Bible was true and that Jesus was true when others around me didn't? Even in the story where you are born into a Christian home, how did you make that choice then to own your faith? Well, that is where the work of the Spirit comes in. Have a look there in verse 5. It says, He saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out generously through Jesus Christ, our Saviour. And here is where the Holy Spirit comes into play. The Holy Spirit is poured out generously on us. This is not like a, a little cup of water being tipped on our heads. This is like standing under a waterfall of grace. And we are given rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Now, those two terms can be a little bit confusing, but essentially it means God has generously poured out the Holy Spirit upon us and the Spirit has given us new birth. It's the idea of being recreated or born again. And then it also says the Holy Spirit's renewal of us, well, well, that's being made new in nature, if you like. And, and so it becomes, it, it begins, I should say, with our recreation, but then continues now. We are made new into the likeness of God's Son. But the big thing to notice here is that we actually need the intervention of the Holy Spirit. Left to ourselves, none of us would ever choose to enter into eternal life because we're deceived, right? We're, we're enslaved, we're trapped, just like a baby can't choose to be born. We can't choose to be born again. Just like a dead person can't revive themselves, we can't simply decide that we're gonna have new life. You see, friends, there's no salvation without rebirth and renewal, unless we become new people with new hearts and new desires and new loves, then we'll actually never turn back to God. And we can't just kind of will ourselves to become that. It's not, it's not a matter of 1% extra per day. Unless the Spirit works in us, we won't even want eternal life with God. We won't even see that the door is open and we certainly won't walk through it. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives you spiritual sight. He opens your eyes to the truth. He enables you to choose God. And this is his role in salvation. Thank God, right, for the outpouring on, of the Holy Spirit on us through Jesus. How great and wonderful is the kindness and love of God. In his commentary on Titus, Tim Chester talks about God's kindness roughly like this. He says, there is nothing more he could have given. He gave himself, he gave his son, he pours out his spirit generously on us. And then he says, there's nothing more he could have done. He justified us at great expense to himself. He gave us new birth. He renewed us. Everything we needed to be done, he has done. And then thirdly, he says, there's nothing more he could have promised. He saved us to become heirs, right? Looking forward 
with certain hope to an, an eternity spent enjoying everything that Christ deserves. And he does all of that for those whose past is folly, disobedience, enslavement, deception, a life lived in malice, envy, and hatred. So how do we respond to the kindness and love of God? Well, we have confidence, right? We should have confidence in our salvation, knowing that our eternal security is not dependent on our good works. And it's not dependent on our, how shiny our life is, but on the work of Jesus at the cross. So we ought to have confidence in our salvation because it's all about what Jesus has done, what Christ has done for us. We ought to praise God. We ought to thank God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit for all they have done for us. We can do that in prayer, through song, in our speech to one another. We we ought to be living lives that are filled with thankfulness and praise for what God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit have have done for us. Love. We ought to love God. God's love for us ought to then flow back to Him. We ought to be people who delight in, in the God whose kindness has actually been shown to us. John Stocker wrote these words in one of his hymns in 1776. He said, Thy mercy, my God, is the theme of my song, the joy of my heart and the boast of my tongue. Thy free grace alone from first to the last hath won my affections and bound my soul fast. So we ought to love God with all of our being. But you know, the big thing that Paul actually emphasizes here in Titus is something different altogether, something I find kind of surprising. Have a look there in verse 8. This is what he says. He says, this is a trustworthy saying. So that's the gospel message we've just heard. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote to them, devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. And, 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 so, and so the response is doing what is good. And in this chapter alone, Paul talks about doing what is good just three times. So in verse one, he says, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate and to always be gentle toward everyone. And then you have verse eight, which we just saw. And then the whole section actually ends with chapter three, verse 14. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. And so the response, right, to this gospel message is living a good life. It's being devoted to what is good. And notice there in verse eight, it actually flows straight out of the gospel. He says, I want you to stress these things. That is, he wants Titus to stress the kindness and love of God. He wants Titus to stress the work of the Holy Spirit. He wants Titus to to stress the work of God, the Son in our lives. Why? So that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things, again, he's talking about the gospel of grace here, are excellent and profitable for everyone. And it stands in direct contrast to false teaching or foolish arguments. So in verse 9, he goes on to say, but avoid 
foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these things are unprofitable and useless. So Titus is to stress salvation by grace alone. He's to stress the work of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit and avoid foolish, foolish controversy. And the result is when people know their God and know God's love and kindness and goodness to them, they ought to live lives that are good, profitable, excellent. And so here's the hard thing that I think that the book of Titus is saying. Although good works can never be the basis of salvation, they are the essential evidence of salvation. Good works will never contribute anything to your salvation whatsoever. Remember? There is nothing more he could have given. There is nothing more he could have done. There is nothing more he could have promised. And yet at the same time, a saved life is a transformed life. He actually urges us to live differently to the world around us. And that is going to be costly at times. Have a look in chapter 1, verse 1. You can see how costly it's going to be just straight up. Be subject to rulers and authorities. Be obedient. Be, be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate and always gentle towards everyone. That is how it's to live before the world. And the reason is that God has actually saved us from folly and disobedience and malice and envy and being hated and hating one another and the kindness of love of God has appeared and radically changed who we are. And in fact, this theme of doing good is pervasive, not just in chapter three, but all through the book of Titus. And the big message that we, that is, is that we are to stress the gospel message. We are to keep talking about this gospel message, this trustworthy saying, so that we might live the gospel. We are to stress the kindness that God has shown to us and to, and, and to one another. And, and, and we're to do that so that we live good lives before the world. But we're, we're to live good lives in relation to people at church and people in our home and people in our workplaces and people in our neighborhood. And as we do that, Titus tells us that we actually adorn the gospel message we believe. I was chatting to a friend of mine a while ago who's strayed from Christianity. And he says, he says things like, church is my neighborhood, church is my family. That's where kind of he finds community now. But because he, he's a complex kind of individual and he has this complex relationship with his family's, his extended family's version of Christianity, which from what I can gather was very dogmatic, very stern, very works oriented, very much shamed people into obedience. He recently said to me this, he said, you hunt a Bible church people, that's what he calls us, <laughs> I can't work you out. You sound like you believe all the things of my past, but you're the best people I know. You are really just lovely people. See, he wants to write us off as some kind of extremist arm of Christianity, but, but he can't. He loves the people that he knows from our church. Now, I reckon that sounds like Titus 2, yeah? In Titus 2, we live according to the gospel of grace. Why? Verse 5, so that no one will malign the word of God. 
Why? Verse 8, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Verse 10, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. And so in the home, in the church, in the workplace, in all spheres of life, we are to live in a way that actually commends Christ. There's no virtue in becoming like the world in order to try and win the world. That is backwards thinking. We are to stress these things, right? The gospel truths and the evidence that we get it is actually lives that bring glory to God. And so here's what's confronting. Mission in the city of Newcastle starts with every moment of every day. There is a place for special events and evangelistic courses and all those sorts of things. There are places where we get to get the opportunity to clearly articulate and proclaim those gospel truths. But the birthplace of mission is doing good in everyday life, in your home, in your street, in your workplace, in your school, in your neighborhood. And we stress the gospel to one another so we can live the gospel out in front of others. I don't know about you, but that's something I wanna be praying for, for our church. I want to ask God that he would make the people of Hunter Bible Church just like this great vision that we see here in the, in the book of Titus, stressing the gospel, avoiding controversy and living out of grace. Why don't I pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word to us. We thank you that you remind us of the salvation that we have in Christ that comes from you, that is through the work of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the reminder that it's not because of anything we have done, but it's because of your kindness, your love, your mercy, your grace. We pray that we would hang on to these things and stress these things. Help us, Heavenly Father, to avoid controversy because those things are useless and not profitable at all. Help us to stress the gospel to one another to ourselves and live out of a place of grace, understanding the goodness of, and kindness of God our Father. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.